Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, February 2nd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us details on the newly announced federal travel restrictions now in place and clarification on the stringent self-isolation guidelines for returning travelers. February is heart month. We speak with the doctor of endocrinology about the unique risks presented by type 2 diabetes when it comes to overall heart health. Is the province's isolation hotel program effective in helping limit the spread of COVID-19? We get the thoughts of Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist with the University of Calgary. And finally, it's a tradition that spans close to 20 years. We catch up with Robin Adair from our sister station, Country 105, for details on this year's edition of the Caring for Kids Radiothon. 610 on the morning news on this week's episode of the West Block host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Talk to everything from vaccine delays to new travel restrictions and how they will impact the travel industry. Mercedes joins us now with more. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Good morning. A, a busy one for you on the program, so I want to you know, unpack this and kick things off with uh, travel. And a direct quote from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, now is just not the time to be flying. And I think it's now next to impossible or at least very difficult if you wanted to travel. So can you give us a, a bit of a roundup of some of the restrictions? Because it seems like we had lots of information over the past handful of days. Yeah, so essentially the the heart of the restrictions are this. Canadian airlines have voluntarily agreed to cut routes to certain sun destinations. Not all, which has been a source of criticism, Mm -hmm. but Mexico and the Caribbean in particular, uh, because those are the two most popular. If you are coming back into the country and you're flying back in, um, no matter what, essentially, um, you have to have a test that you show the airline before you get on. And this is not just sun destinations, this is anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're coming from outside of Canadian borders, then when you get here, you have to have another test. If you don't have that test, you can be ticketed. You also have to stay in the designated quarantine hotel, which could cost you as much as $2,000 for three days until you have a second negative test. And at that point, you can either continue with your journey domestically or go back to your home. Uh, but the amount of money, the challenge around it, and you, by the way, have to pay for the test on both ends too, which can be quite expensive if you're in the U.S. or somewhere else. Uh, They're really trying to create a very strong financial disincentive for people to travel to uh, locations outside the country, especially certain vacation destinations. Uh, Although I'll say as a Calgarian, it caught my eye that Hawaii was not on the list Mm -hmm. because that's very popular with Westerners. It kind of felt like the the, uh, Caribbean, Mexico, I mean, Mexico can be anywhere, so can Caribbean, but uh, certainly has a heavier eastern central canadian influence uh they didn't have florida on the list either which was a source of criticism a lot of canadians have winter homes in florida um that one is not one that canadian airlines have stopped flights from and yeah mercedes that's been the big you know discussion out here is that for us in alberta you know mexico is usually the big destination for those in the east quebec and ontario often traveling to florida and that was not included so it feels like it's now you know turning into an east versus west again and just yet another issue yeah and i think you know that's people are are getting upset about it and and i can understand the feeling at the same time i'd say uh if you look for a commonality here what are they not banning american destinations Mm -hmm. uh and i think that might be a significant part of this do you want to start banning travel to the u.s until you have the biden administration on board with that um and the people who have property in florida 
spoke quite a bit here. Um, so there's there's that angle. But I, I think that it is likely more that they banned certain countries and areas at this point, and the United States was not on that list versus targeting an Eastern population or a Western population. Um, that has an interesting effect just on where people tend to go. Uh, but I think the U.S. is still such a big trading partner, and there's so many um, essentially cargo holds that are coming back with those passengers. They haven't banned it yet. That's not to say that by not banning the U.S. and other sun destinations that aren't just Mexico and the Caribbean, that you really shut down very much of the travel that was actually happening. In fact, most of the travel is over the land border. Most of it is actually essential. And we broke the numbers down. And we're talking uh, six out of eight million people approximately who didn't have to quarantine because they're essential. Uh, Understandable, because they're doing their jobs. But here's the thing. They're also not rapid testing those people. So they're going back and forth doing their jobs, but not only is no one protecting them by testing them, they're not protecting their families or anyone they come into contact with. And I don't think the virus recognizes whether you're an essential worker or not. So that's that's kind of a a big hole in this whole plan. Mercedes, there's been a lot of questions swirling around that $2,000 price uh, to uh, quarantine for three days in a hotel and including your vaccines. Do we know exactly how this number was determined or is it was just a random pull to, to, to kind of scare people and uh, to enforce the fact that travel is uh, not recommended? You know, I, I don't know exactly how they came up with this number. It sure seems high for three days. Um, are they paying a premium because these are people who could have corona? And so the hotels are going to say, you know, that's a lot of extra cleaning. That's a lot of extra precautions. We have to pay people extra to work in a hotel full of people who could have COVID-19. Um, that certainly has been a source of criticism that people have wondered why it's $2,000. They have said it's a ballpark number, like it's not guaranteed you're going to pay that much. So it's also possible that they're inflating it a little bit at the beginning to what the absolute maximum possible is to try to send the message to people. Uh, if you don't have $2,000 to spend in a hotel when you come back, then don't be going abroad. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes when it hits you in the wallet, it makes you think twice, right? So I guess that's the whole, what's behind that. Let's switch uh, topics and move over to vaccines for a sec before we let you go and and talking about how we're still, you know, short here in Canada and we don't seem to be, you know, having anything, any any vaccine made in this country. And and that's been a big source of contention over the past few days too. It it has been, and it's one of those things um, that, you know, Canadians would like a vaccine made here. One, who doesn't like made Canada, but two, just the practicalities of of not being the potential victim of either protection sentiment in Europe or in the United States, both of which are manufacturing vaccines. So they can kind of afford to be perfectionist and still have uh, the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine available. We would have nothing. Um, And so there's a lot of pressure on the government because they talked at the beginning of the pandemic, now almost a year ago, extensively about how we could never be dependent on certain things from overseas again, like PPE, that we need domestic manufacturing capability for essential goods that are essentially national security at the end of the day. Um, And then as the pandemic went on, they kind of started talking about global supply chains and how, you know, that this was working and it was fine. Um, And it has worked fine until you started to see people looking at hoarding their vaccines and and not letting them out of the country. Um, And there are Canadian manufacturers, in fact, who are capable, uh, or will be, I should say, capable, they think, of making these vaccines who'd come to the federal government at the beginning. And they were complaining and saying, uh, in particular, the one Calgary-based company, Mm -hmm. uh, look, we were only two months behind Moderna. Um, And if we had had the same funding, maybe we could have gotten it. Now, 
on the one hand, you can understand why the government would go with big companies like Moderna and Pfizer, who they know, one, have a history of, of significant pharmaceutical manufacturing, two, the ability to scale up very quickly. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, they, they have not been looking at, let alone the short term, uh, the long term implications of why we would want to consider being able to make these vaccines in Canada. It would likely be more expensive, yes. Um, but one of the big things this has highlighted is that no one was ready for this pandemic. No one thought about it. No one developed the capacity to deal with it. Um, And so I think they're facing a lot of criticism on that file. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Mercedes. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. 11 million Canadians are living with diabetes or pre-diabetes. It's all part of Heart Month knowledge. Millions of Canadians leaving their diabetes unchecked, particularly during COVID. Let's talk about it. Joining us this morning, Dr. Stuart Ross, endocrinologist and clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You know, uh, we talk about heart and obviously we know it is a, a key component in keeping us alive, but what do we need to know? Know about heart health that maybe is something that most people are unaware of? Well, first of all, the basics we now know a lot about. Um, over the last decades, we've learned that getting our weight to a sensible level, uh, exercising regularly, thinking about sensible food, we now monitor cholesterol and blood pressure. They sound like small things, uh, they're individual items, but actually collectively, they make a big difference. And so when we were looking back maybe 20, 30 years ago, um, particularly people with diabetes where the risks are higher, uh, the death rate was high from heart disease. It was probably the major cause of death in uh, type 2 diabetes and, of course, amongst the general population. But those numbers have improved. There's no question about that. And it's because of the surveillance that we follow, um, getting regular assessments, thinking about general health, Um, There's been quite a a societal change as we move forward with that. Does that mean that we've defeated the problem? Absolutely not, because there's so much uh, room for improvement. There's so many areas that we could actually uh, change things. The world of diabetes is a very good example, whereby we know that um, over a third of uh, people with diabetes are going to experience uh, significant heart disease and maybe the cause of their death. And we are able now to reduce that by the concepts of looking after ourselves. And the more exciting aspect, too, is that there are now better therapies for us to uh, to treat people with diabetes that will actually treat the risk of heart disease and kidney disease and other issues uh, related to diabetes. I'm kind of shocked. I know a handful of people with diabetes. I didn't know the connection between the you know, risk of high blood pressure and uh, heart uh, heart disease and stroke. Uh, but what's uh, interesting to me is the fact that in 2021, people with diabetes can certainly control their diabetes under medical supervision. But I'm, I'm wondering, Dr. Ross, how many people might not even know they have uh, diabetes and what are the signs? It, it's if we again, if we go back not so long ago, um, very large percentage of the population did not know they had diabetes because there were no assessments being made. Um, we've actually improved a lot in terms of surveillance, uh, the development of the primary care networks in um, in Alberta, for example, is just a very good way of saying physicians and healthcare professionals, nurses, pharmacists, and are asking and and talking to people about the risk of diabetes. So if you have a family member with diabetes, there's an increased risk, obviously. Uh, people who are overweight, 
definitely high risks. So that the actual symptoms sometimes may be very mild. They may not notice very much. They may be a bit more tired. They may find they're passing urine a bit more because they're peeing out some glucose. Um, but sometimes it's not till much later uh, when there's already problems that they notice it. Again, I think it's nice to say we've reduced that. Uh, because people are coming in for regular assessments. One of the big concerns with COVID was that people were not being seen by physicians or or healthcare professionals because they didn't want to go into a medical office or they were even closed. So we we don't know yet the impact on that will be in terms of diagnosing diabetes. In terms of following people, uh, the virtual phone call uh, appointments have worked very well, making sure people understand what we need to do. And we can do a lot of this testing from home now. It doesn't have to be at a lab or in a medical office, but it's still a concern. Doctor, obviously diabetes is something we talk about during heart month, but heart and stroke, obviously an issue we need to address as well. Is that something we're, we're pushing for the month of February as well as the awareness of both of those? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's great to have a, a month like this because it makes people, just even our discussion today, it makes people think, okay, ha- have I been checked? Have those simple things been looked at? Because they are simple. We can do a lot of those simple things. And if we treat them, the difference is tremendous. Um, we also know that uh, we're very lucky. In Alberta, for example, we have uh, coverage through our formularies for the newer medications, which actually protect the heart and the kidney in the presence of diabetes. So we want people to know that if they're not under good control, we have a lot we can do about it. It's just making sure that discussion can take place. And again, COVID hasn't helped us in that process. But I think we're doing pretty good in terms of overcoming that. And people are learning there's another way to get uh, that type of advice and medical care. And we can continue uh, to make a difference. But awareness, that's always important. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That is Dr. Stuart Ross, endocrinologist and clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. More online at heartandstroke.ca. 709 on the morning news. Yesterday, Alberta announced the expansion of its one-time self-isolation payment from Calgary and Edmonton to now encompass all corners of the province for people who have to quarantine away from home amid the pandemic. Uh, But are these isolation hotels effective at limiting the spread of the virus? Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, joins us now with his thoughts. Good morning to you, Dr. Janney. Good morning. So do you think this option of staying in one of these hotels is the answer uh, to ease the financial burden and encourage more Albertans to utilize this form of isolation? I'm not sure if it's the answer, but it's definitely going to help. Uh, we've seen this now not only in Canada, for example, lots of uh, these facilities in Ontario, but around the world. And, and we have to recognize that a lot of people simply don't have the ability to self-isolate at home. Either they're in group living or, you know, for example, have a family and, and not enough space to have a dedicated bedroom and bathroom and limit contact with other people in a house. So by providing them a place to isolate away from others, uh, this will help reduce the spread of the virus. 
You know, and that's what we've been hearing too. Multi-generational families, you know, it's really difficult to, to get some space in between you. Know, we even interviewed a, a fellow last week who he lived in this very small house with his girlfriend and they had one bathroom and it just was not possible for him to stay away from her and therefore potentially infect her. So is is it is it something that we really need to be pushing a little more often so that people do take advantage of it? It, it really does make sense. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I don't know how many people are aware they're out there. I, and I also think there's this uh, vision that they're they're uh, a prison-type system. And, you know, they are restrictive. They're right, but, but they're not designed to be a prison. They're designed to provide some safety and provide a place where you can be physically separated. You will still have, you know, all your outside connections, phone, TV, mm-hmm. Internet, uh, food is you know, well uh, provided. So, so this is not uh, uh, locking somebody up, but it's an opportunity to provide that physical separation that is absolutely critical to stop the spread of the virus. And the, ho- the hotels themselves, uh, Dr. Janney, will have the protocols in place and instructions on how to do things right. So it's not like you're just walking up to the travel lodge. These are designated and these are set up. Yeah, absolutely. And and by doing that, they do have all of that extra help there to provide meals, but also critically medical attention. So if you have questions, if you're concerned, if you are noticing symptoms, there are people that can help address that and can help you decide whether you need medical attention or not. What does it look like, Dr. Janney, in my house, for example, if I get COVID and I'm in my house with my family, where are the potential risks of me spreading it within the house? Yeah, so I, I think we tend to underestimate those risks. Um, you know, reviewing the guidelines last night, I, I was uh, just, you know, surprised that uh, how difficult they would be to follow. For example, in, in, a, in a house where I live, you know, multiple family members, you should have a separate bedroom, separate bathroom. You should be eating separately. Anytime you're in common spaces, you have to be wearing a mask. And probably, uh, although not directly laid out, I would imagine the uninfected people should also be wearing a mask. So now you're wearing masks all the time at home. Uh, you know, so these are things that, that one, are very difficult, and two, I, I'm sure compliance is probably a little bit low on, uh, simply because we don't understand the requirements. So much simpler, if possible, if you can take advantage of it, to physically remove yourself from that environment for that, you know, short isolation period. Um, and then you also keep your housemates or, or family safer as well. I got a kind of a, a related but kind of a question that we'd almost get from a texter. So if you had a big enough house, for example, maybe you had three floors and somebody's, you know, quarantining in the basement, uh, but had to go upstairs to use something in the kitchen, for example, normally you'd maybe leave the food at the, the, the base of the stairwell for them. But if they were to go into the kitchen, um, how long would it take for that person to have to leave the kitchen to know that the kitchen is free? Is that a 10 minute thing? Because I know we throw different time yeah. frames around. No, there is no absolute uh, number. So there's no, if you're under 10 minutes, you're fully safe. These are all just increasing risk. The longer you're there, the the more likely. Uh, We're still asking people to limit contact as much as possible, but it's not absolute. We do appreciate that in most homes to to be fully separated is essentially impossible. Uh, So we just have to work with those other controls, wearing masks, enhanced sanitation. So, you know, somebody wiping it down perhaps after the infected person or the isolating person was in the kitchen. Um, But we are asking that they stay as separated as as possible within that environment. And we appreciate there are a lot of people who can't. There are people 
for example, in group student living or, uh, you know, work camps where separation is a little more difficult. Uh, and this provides an opportunity where you don't have a separate floor in a house or separate bathrooms to, uh, to, to get that physical space between you and your housemates. Is the air ventilation system in the home also spreading that virus around? <sighs> Potentially. I mean, there, there is some evidence it can be aerosol. It still seems to be a minor component of viral transmission, although that may change with the variants. Um, but yeah, it, those also uh, can be a problem, and, and that's one reason why these, these isolation guidelines are, wearing, are, are recommending mask wearing indoors. Dr. Jenny, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk to you about that COVID variant yeah. that has been identified in a Calgary school. And I know that we're, we've all been on pins and needles when our kids are in school. We want them to be safe. And I think that a lot of us, our parents, uh, us parents who have kids in school are, you know, following the headlines every day. So should we be particularly frightened that there's now one of these variants within the school system? No, I wouldn't say frightened. I, I think we do have to, you know, pay attention. We do have to be concerned to some extent. Um, you know, we, we've known these variants, unfortunately, have been in the province now for a while, and, and we, we have said that um, really we, we have to do our best to keep these out of the schools, and, and unfortunately, it looks like uh, one has entered the school system. But at the same time, we, we've also um, said that, you know, that this is not uh, a more severe disease. It's simply easier to spread. Um, the good news is surveillance has picked this up. The student was identified. Uh, all close uh, associations were contacted even before we knew it was a variant. So as soon as the student developed symptoms and tested positive, everybody was contacted and, and asked to self-isolate, as we do for every COVID case. And it was only later that we determined it was a variant. So people were already self-isolating. Um, you know, it's going to be the, the next several days to, to a week to know how far this potentially spread. But once we ended up with it in the community, I, I think most of us recognized that it literally was a matter of time before this happened. And I, I think we were hoping it would be uh, uh, several more weeks or, or closer to, uh, to, to better vaccine coverage before it did get into the schools. But we knew it was coming. Sadly so. We'll be chatting with you again soon. Thank you for a little bit of a different conversation with you today, but I always appreciate your expertise. You're welcome both. Take care. Thank you so much. That is Dr. Craig Janney, of course, Associate Professor, Department of Micro- Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. 849 on the morning news. The 18th annual Caring for Kids Radiothon in support of the Alberta Children's Hospital Foundation begins tomorrow on our sister station, Country 105. And morning show host Robin Adair joins us now with more on this year's event. Good morning to you, Robin. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. We really appreciate all the support you give us. Well, you do some incredible work Mm -hmm. down the hall. You're in our hearts, but you're down the hall about uh, 25 (laughs) steps. So I want to talk about this tradition. 18 years strong. It's going to continue, but it will look a little bit different this year. Tell us how you're going to pull it off, Robin. Well, we, uh, of course, normally are at the Children's Hospital. It's our very, very favorite part of the year when we get to go up to the Children's Hospital and hang out with the families and the docs and the nurses and all the great staff at the Alberta Children's Hospital who make such a difference every single day. But this year, of course, because of the pandemic, and I know you guys went through this in December with your very successful Pledge Day, it's going to look a little different. It's going to be virtual. So we are staying at the radio station, but we are still going to be talking to the families and talking to the healthcare professionals and uh, sharing those stories with you on the air every day starting tomorrow uh, at 6 a.m., so Wednesday, Thursday, and then wrapping it up Friday night. 
Robin, you've been at Country Fun 105 a few years now. A so, couple. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I know there are so many stories, I'm sure, that have touched your heart over the years, but is there one sort of that, that stood out to you that always just brings this home to you, how important it is to, to get people to help out with the Radiothon? Wow, there have been so many stories. And I think one thing that really stays with me um, is that even in the most difficult situations, every single family we've ever chatted with through the years, and and you guys are both parents, so you can imagine the unimaginable, the things we don't like to talk about. Mm -hmm. But even in those cases, the moms and dads still come out and they have um, uh, groups of fundraisers together. They sometimes volunteer at the hospital and they're always on board with helping out Radiothon. And they just want to share the story of their children that maybe um, they've sadly lost. Uh, there was just nothing that could be done. And and the the strength of those parents, the courage for them to come forward and share their stories and share the stories of their children with us, we want to honor them and, and let everybody know how uh, profound a difference that their child's lives have made to other kids in Calgary because that's where we begin a lot of uh, research and a lot of the mm-hmm. developments that have happened over 18 years. It's all about the kids, and it's all about the listeners and Calgarians making a difference, and you make it easy for people, don't you? We hope to, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's a phone, phone number you want to jot down right now, 403-802-2700. Uh, you can donate there. 18 bucks a month is all it takes to become a miracle maker. And this year, again, we're going to have another million-dollar match uh, from the Tom Christ and the Christ Family Foundation. We are so honored and thrilled that they are going to match every dollar that we make up to a million dollars. So we really are counting on you to call us and support us during the three day, day, days of the Country 105 Caring for Kids Radiothon. Give us that phone number again, Robin. 403-802-2700. You can also go to kidsradiothon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, guys, and thanks so much for your support. We love you. Well, we love you back. You guys do a great job, and uh, you know we hope that everybody will be able to help out for sure. That's Robin Adair, Morning Show host over at Country 105.